this episode was recorded on the traditional lands of the Gadigal, Wangal, and Bedigal people of the Eora Nation and the Dark people of the Dark Nation. We acknowledge that sovereignty of these lands was never ceded and pay our respects to elders past and present. Hello and welcome to Trope Watchers, the show about pop culture and why it matters. I'm Neil. And I'm Scott, and we're culture scholars who yearn for Sydney's drag kings to return to the Sly Fox Hotel. We are joined today by special guest Dr. Karen Drysdale. Karen is a research fellow at the Centre for Social Research in Health, or CSRH, at UNSW Sydney. She is currently a key researcher on the Crystal Pleasures and Sex Between Men project, funded by the National Health and Medical Research Council and WA Health, among other research projects. Karen has also written extensively on scene making, particularly with regard to Sydney's drag king scene. Her disciplinary background lies broadly within cultural studies, with theoretical and methodological approaches taken from gender studies, anthropology, sociology, and philosophy. Karen, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So first of all, congratulations on launching your book, uh, which is Intimate Investments in Drag King Culture, um, earlier this year. So to begin, we might get you to give a bit of an overview of what the book is about. Sure. Well, as the title suggests, the book charted the intimate investments made by lesbian and queer women um, in a local drag king culture in Sydney. The um, motivation for this book started with my doctoral research when I had was aware that this phenomenon was occurring and at that point it had been happening for about five or six years but there was no evidence of its, of its existence. Uh, it operated, um, I guess, below um, the radar, mainstream media radar so I was interested in trying to capture some of the ways in which drag king performances licensed a range of activities and social interactions that occurred within those spaces. And then over time I came to develop um, a notion of scene that was more theoretically grounded than its prior colloquial use. So everyone would refer to the scene without having much of a... Um, of an idea what that really meant and so I started to interrogate um, what scene meant in these sorts of spaces, especially in Sydney where um, urban social spaces for lesbian and queer women have been very precarious and they operated on a temporary borrowing basis, which is quite distinct from gay male social spaces. Yeah, yeah. So uh, that's one thing that kind of struck me um because I've been reading the book and uh, kind of talking about that geographical sense, because I live in, without doxing myself, I do live in a suburb that has historically been known as a like lesbian neighborhood, uh, but that's kind of not gone away, but it's aged. So it doesn't really have much of a lively scene. And it's kind of one of those things where it's a very family kind of lesbian neighborhood now. Uh, but a lot of that is also kind of gone indoors. So you don't see it as much. It's not as visible. Um, so maybe, uh, you could go a little bit more into, uh, that idea of scene and, and, um, I guess how you've seen that develop in your research and what are some examples that you could talk about? Sure, absolutely. I think the main, um, thing to think through is that scene as a concept is indebted to a lot of the work that came out of music cultures or subcultures. Um, so the idea of a music scene, um, was really the starting point for the type of way that I've been using this. And when we think of scenes, we have a notion of them as being 
these kind of um, unstable or precarious sites of urban sociality that, is, uh, that, that sort of spring up around a particular visible phenomenon and then over time they recede um, or get co-opted or um, uh, into the mainstream or uh, just become less popular and therefore just die um, a death of their own making. When I started thinking about how the concept of a scene works with the type of uh, place-holding um, that often wasn't historically, avail historically available to lesbian and queer women, um, I found some of the work in human geography to be really helpful in thinking about how scenes intersect with, I guess, a longer tradition of what um, Andrew Gorman-Murray and Catherine Nash have called lesbian mobilities. Uh, so this is very distinct from the type of um, spatial occupation um, that you see in the conventional gayborhoods, um, which is another term that um, is used by human geographers to describe that kind of discrete sense of space, spatial occupation by gay men. Um, and they were talking about um, the types of movements and mobilities um, that lesbian and queer women necessarily need to engage in in terms of their spatial um, occupation was more of a borrowing of space. One of the things that they pointed out um, was that there, while there may not be such stability in the sense of a neighbourhood like you see in the gayborhood, um, a lot of lesbian investments in space centre around particular landmarks or really visible sites of um, LGBTIQ sociality. Um, the lesbian bar, of course, is one um, example of that. In Sydney, however, we don't really have any lesbian bars. You, there was probably one um, that was a very short-lived enterprise with um, Dawn O'Donnell and her business partner. Um, but what we tend to see instead is um, lesbians and queer women uh, temporarily appropriating space that um, may have been a mixed venue or a venue that was explicitly exclusively for gay men. Um, Rebecca Jennings, an historian up at, um, I think at Monash at the time, but now at Macquarie, um, has detailed this history up until um, 1978 in great detail. Um, so those sort of um, ideas uh, force me to sort of think about how scenes are uh, can operate with moments of intensity um, and, and provoke these very strong investments in their ongoing uh, maintenance at the same time as they necessarily are mobile uh, and momentary and ephemeral. And obviously the book is uh, kind of specifically looking at drag king scenes specifically. So could you talk a little bit about how you've defined that in the book and what kind of boundaries you've set up there uh, when talking about drag king culture? Sure. Uh, so I use drag kings as a way in to look at a much broader social scene that existed for lesbian and queer women in Sydney. Um, I felt that drag kings provided a type of spectacularity um, or a visible presence um, that would draw people to events, but then once the drag king was off the stage, the whole range of other activities took place, and I was interested in looking at that broader range and also how scenes had trespassed into other spaces such as, um, you know, neighbouring streets, um, online spaces and so on. I think the definition of drag kings, much like drag itself, is highly contestable and it's changed over time. Um, the conventional definition of a drag king um, operates on a kind of binary notion of gender so that there is a real body uh, beneath the opposite display of, um, of gender. So drag kings would 
would conventionally be understood as biological women or women assigned female at birth who are performing a masculinity solely for the purposes of entertainment. Uh, in reality, that uh, definition is, is, is very stretchy. Um, we've seen in... There's many empirical studies across the world that have looked at drag king performance cultures and seen that they have included uh, trans and gender diverse people um, as well as cisgender um, uh, men. So these are men who have been assigned male at birth, at birth and perform masculinity. Um, and it also intersects with other types of queer performance and drag performance like bio queens um, who are women assigned female at birth who perform uh, femininity. The... You would think that this kind of inability or impossibility to define a drag king at the outset would probably work against um, this notion of a drag king scene, but I found that the types of conversations that took place, um, and in this research I held a series of focus groups with uh, participants of the scene as one way to explore this type of um, work, was that this contestation over definition was actually a really... Um, revitalising um, stimulus for the scene itself. Uh, if the scene uh, can't, isn't capable of stabilising one single definition, then it becomes a much broader, uh, it has a much broader capacity to include a whole range of different performance genres that might be only tangentially related to drag. So whilst this was the drag king scene in Sydney, uh, drag king events often had drag queens, burlesque performers, um, strippers, gender illusionists, uh, reveal artists. Um, and I think that the sort of typology that I'm just reiterating there demonstrates um, the sort of expansiveness of, of drag itself as a, um, as a conceptual holding um, place, much like scene is. So you've kind of started to talk through your methodology there and um, clearly you're talking about a subject matter which is um, very specific in, in different ways, but also, as you say, quite plastic almost and... Um, uh, there's a lot of flexibility there. Uh, so I was wondering if you could talk us through some of the challenges involved in pitching the research and um, subsequently a book uh, around the topic and how you approached kind of appealing um, beyond the scene specificity. Well, I think the first thing with any um, doctoral thesis that has any hope of seeing the light of day in a monograph is that it does require definitely rethinking the entire structure um, of the work um, and it's a broader appeal. Um, with a thesis, you have to scaffold everything that you say very carefully. There's a certain um, thesis writing convention uh, that allows examiners to um, look for the things that they're used to looking for and, and making sure that the work is rigorous um, and expansive and it does what it says it's going to do. And I think that when you are approaching the work alternatively as a monograph is that you have to sort of think about removing all that scaffolding, um, removing the training wheels <laughs> and try to think about um, uh, what core ideas in it um, have a wider appeal than just to, you know, the examiners that you, um, uh, that you want to have your PhD awarded uh, from. So the, um, the way that I approached this was thinking that Drag king cultures have a certain popular appeal within uh, LGBTIQ um, communities and circles. Uh, there are uh, drag king troops over m many parts of the world. Um, some of them are still going and some of them have, um, have died a bit of a slow death. Uh, so there's a popular cultural um, interest, I think, in 
in kind of phenomenon that can be allocated to a broader LGBTIQ life world. Uh, the other thing that I wanted to draw attention to was this concept of scene. So I used the drag king culture in Sydney as an entry point to examining what a scene might be, um, how it might come into being, um, and as it turned out um, unexpectedly throughout my ethnographic um, observation is how it fades from view and what type of investments can be stabilised or transformed um, or even alighted um, at that moment of disappearance. So I think it has a conceptual and methodological value because for me scene making was both the concept and the, the um, methodology that went to capture them. Um, but also at the same time it was really important for me to privilege the voices of people who came to the scene and made it what it is. Uh, so in one way it was also a local history as well um, and that was really important to me because that local history was missing in um, a lot of the institutionally endorsed archives um, that there's no evidence of this drag king scene existing for the 10 years of its run. So it was really important to, uh, something I neglected in the thesis, was to go back to some of those very original pioneering drag king performers and producers and to get a really accurate history um, about how the scene emerged and what conditions it emerged under and how those conditions shaped the scene as it came to um, be over the last 10 years. Yeah, so obviously our podcast, Trope Watch, is, is predominantly focused on popular culture. And I have mentioned before that um, the study and analysis of popular culture, that meaning texts and forms and practices, etc., that demonstrate mass appeal, is not necessarily limited to what counts and the representations they contain. Um, which, that is predominantly what we do here on Trope Watches. But I also think such work is as interested in what and how things that are determined to not be popular culture. And so we've had on the show before Shams Kader, who covered um, Sydney's indie uh, music scene, which is by design not popular culture, um, is actually actively opposed to being considered that. Um, and then there's also other sort of cultural forms that are actively non-normative, um, as well as the ways in which, you know, so-called natural market forces um, make certain things not as popular as others, which, as we all know, is kind of tied to non-neutral power dynamics as well. And I think what can be at stake in these kind of discussions, uh, discussing smaller scenes in a pop culture podcast context, is um, it becomes clear when we consider the disappearance of Sydney's drag king scene as um, symptomatic of a possible wider threat uh, to the reputation of places in Sydney, like Newtown, as LGBT precincts. Um, and I also find it fascinating how you were talking about, uh, I mean, digging into that acronym, like the L part of that, um, lesbian specific social spaces and social history and how that's kind of flown under the radar. And I do love this idea of um, borrowing spaces, the temporariness behind that. And how do you account for that in our, in our memory work? How do we remember that? How do we continue that? Um, and I also think when it comes to smaller scenes or scenes that no longer exist, um, it's still worth bringing them up because they can illuminate popular culture. And one of my favorite examples of this, I don't want to dwell on it too much um, to distract from our subject matter today, but Japanese shoot style scenes in the 80s, which is a particular 
performing art philosophy within professional wrestling was the conduit between one pop culture form, professional wrestling, and the first mixed martial arts promotion. So even in a pop culture podcast, talking about such things obviously has value. And I think as it pertains to local drag king scenes, it it seems to me that this research is um, especially relevant to a conversation about our dominant narratives of Sydney's social life and its history, not only in terms of LGBTIQ-specific um, social life and history, but overall as well. And I guess the last sort of uh, reason why I think we should be discussing such things on this podcast is that the popular obviously has an obfuscating effect, particularly in terms of attention capital. And uh, again, my favorite example of this is just Disney's grip on mainstream film culture versus any sort of wider attention to filmic production. Um, so if we're always focusing on just what co- constitutes popular culture in film culture, we're basically only going to be talking about Disney from now on. And it is worth going beyond those boundaries to raise up certain other uh, means of cultural production. Absolutely. Um, there's a couple of, lots of entry points um, in that response that you just gave then. Um, the first, I think, is that uh, drag king cultures were indebted to a much longer uh, history of queer performance in Sydney. And that history is really important because it was um, really at the forefront of what was happening in other uh, places around the world. Um, Seymour Hardy has been a photographer and a documenter of um, of LGBTIQ spaces and in her records, the types of queer performance that was happening in Sydney in the 1990s was so far ahead of what was happening in New York and the, and London, for example, um, which are often considered to be the um, at the forefront of those sorts of um, performances. So um, it, this was not a culture that operated in isolation. That it um, that it, it it needs to, we need to consider those longer histories when we're thinking about how drag king cultures came to be. Um, the other thing that I think is worth pointing out is that uh, when we think about scenes as simply sites for urban sociality is they don't seem to be or take on significance in their own right. Um, Usually they are, as you said, obfuscated by some kind of more visible um, uh, pop cultural reference. Uh, So, you know, bar cultures, music cultures, drag king cultures, um, all of these have some kind of visible um, referent or representation that brings people to them. And then highlighting that particular activity or phenomenon over others risks um, uh, losing sight of all of the other types of interactions that are equally important for people who come to these sorts of scenes. At the same time, we use scene colloquially in our everyday language. Um, and that's part of my the other interest in this book was looking at how scenes intersect with everyday itineraries um, and routines. Um, and we often talk about a scene... Um, in, in a moment of retrospection, I think, um, I would probably suggest that despite the ubiquity of the word, um, it's not something that can be tied directly to um, immediate experience. So thinking about um, a bar scene, you really go to a bar and say, wow, I'm now in a scene. Um, it's something that you respect, retrospectively might um allocate as a scene when you're trading anecdotes or things like that after the fact. Um, so there's a bit of a tension here because scenes are by their nature ephemeral. Um, you know, they are these daily or weekly or yearly phenomenon or events that occur. 
but at the same time, they don't hold a particular significance as something that is ephemeral and in danger of being lost. So that's part of the, um, the, the I guess, the, the, the way I wanted to approach this was thinking that some of the very activities that might seem insignificant when held up against the more visible um, uh, phenomenon of drag kinging are in reality really, really important to participants who come to these events um, regularly. Um, I think that would be also the conceptual value in the work around scene as well, because then the type of conceptual and methodological work can maybe be um, applied to other contexts as well. Yeah, so actually on, um, on that kind of last point, uh, the actual fading of Sydney's drag king scene is a, obviously a very important dimension to your research, but it was something that was emerging during field work. Um, so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about, uh, first of all, that kind of, I guess, what caused it to, in your view, what caused it to disappear, but also how that fading impacted the research that you were doing. Sure. Now that I've had time to process this over a number of years, I'm less traumatised um, by the fading of the, of the scene. But at the time, I was doing my, um, what's called, I call an immersive participant observation, um, which is an, uh, a kind of inversion of the anthropological term. Um, and, oh, observant participation, sorry. Um, and the main venue that hosted drag king events up until that point for 10 years just suddenly closed its doors and uh, it was pretty quickly that no drag king events could be found in Sydney at that time in 2012. So I was really devastated. Um, my whole purpose was to track the scene um, in a, quite a minute detail over a year as part of my ethnographic observation and to, um, uh, and to I guess, demonstrate um, all of its various components and um, investments. So when it um, died on me, <laughs> I was pretty distraught. Um, but then it made me start thinking about what a scene might mean to people um, and led me to the conclusion that a scene is really something that is experienced retrospectively um, and that it, this process of um, retrospective realisation is what actually gives a scene its contours and its shape. That prior to that, it is a kind of undefinable social morphology or something um, that people can sort of recognise but can't necessarily um, determine um, what is in the scene or what's without in, outside of the scene. So one of the, th one of the things that I had to do was I had conducted some focus groups, three focus groups with um, research participants who claimed some form of participation in the drag king scene and I left that necessarily vague so they could determine what participation actually meant. And I convened these focus groups with these individuals um, at a time just before the Sly Fox had closed its doors. So there was a kind of, um, at the time, a resigned acknowledgement of the scene's fading popularity. Um, and there was a lot of speculation about what would happen um, if the scene declined. So when it did, only a few short months later, I went back to those focus group um, recordings and started to try to look for moments of um, collective consolidation, um, moments of agreement or disagreement that might indicate where people were sounding each other out as to where the scene, um, uh, where its boundaries lay, what was included and what was it, uh, not included. 
Um, and that goes back to that original question around the drag king definition. I found that um, the contestation over the drag king, uh, who's included in it as a drag king or not, was a really vitalising moment for, for people to really stretch out um, the definition of a drag king scene um, as they were just discussing those finer points um, around uh, definition. At the same time, there were many instances in the focus groups where people were trading anecdotes and those anecdotes then joined with other anecdotes and you could see that there was this sense of a scene that's starting to emerge in those conversations. Uh, so it was using that kind of data, so not just the content of the focus groups, but also I was paying attention to how people interacted in those focus groups that would indicate moments of alliance or disalliance uh, and how that then contributed to this sort of collective scene-making that was taking place. So... What's kind of happened since then, in your view? Have you found that, I mean, when you look at all kind of particularly um, more subcultural scenes, um, a lot of the time when it seems like they've disappeared, actually what's happened is a little bit more complicated than that. Um, So in your view, have you found that the scene has just disappeared or has it evolved or has it dispersed into other areas? Like, what do you see has happened there? I think the first point to consider is that no scene can last forever. Otherwise, it wouldn't be a scene. Scenes are necessarily um, precarious and disruptive and they and they have to hold that sense of ephemerality. Um, otherwise, they become other forms, other more enduring forms, like an institution, for example. Um, so that was the first thing. Um, I never expected... Um, the Sydney Drag King scene, as a scene as I understood it, um, to be something that was going to be stable. Um, there were many reasons that people put forward for the decline of the Drag King scene, ranging from questions around the role of gentrification um, in the inner west of Sydney and its role in um, uh, having spaces available for Drag King uh, producers, especially given um, the, the real lack of uh, financial investment um, in these kind of DIY um, performance cultures. Um, also, the people had suggested that a rising trans and gender diverse um, community membership would disrupt the sort of singular investment in watching drag kings as a form of entertainment. Um, and that is a, that's a really con- complicated and contested claim given the role of trans and gender diverse people as drag king performers and producers in the scene, uh, but also the fact that the scene was not solely defined by the act of watching performances, that there is much more expansive social itinerary taking place there. Um, Some of the other uh, uh, conjecture was just around the popularity of drag kings and its um, commercial sustainability, um, that, you know, the next big thing would happen on the queer performance horizon, and people would then shift those attentions um, uh, to new types of performances or new ways of being together or socialising. Um, so it's a little bit difficult to, to suggest that the scene just suddenly ended um, due to one single force. I'd probably suggest it's more of a, co- of a combination of those, um, th- those ideas, but also the fact that the scene was never meant to last forever. The sort of time passes and things change narrative, I think, I think is more believable in this instance. Um, but, you know, there were still drag king performers out there. Um, the idea that Sydney's drag king scene really took place owing to the longevity and the intensity of drag king performances that took place weekly in Sydney for over a decade. Um, drag king events may take place in other 
um, locations um, with other producers and performers, but they sort of lacked that um, that intensity and longevity. Um, so interestingly, there's been a little bit of a, I guess I could call it a revival of drag king interest in Sydney. Um, Heaps Gay is a queer party scene, um, well known for putting on fantastic parties that often included a performance element. And they've been instrumental in creating a new night called Sydney Drag Kings. And it's interesting that they uh, have provided a platform both for the return of those older drag kings um, and also some new uh, drag kings who are just starting out on the stage. Um, Canned Fruit on Enmore Road um, do a regular or semi-regular drag king night amid the other types of queer performance and drag performance culture that they host. Um, there's also some Facebook groups that have popped up around Sydney drag kings to try and encourage people to um, join the art, um, to distribute information about where opportunity performance opportunities might exist. Um, and some other nights would often have a bit of a drag king component in them. So it's not that uh, drag king performances are over in Sydney, it's just that it's taken a new form and a form that I would suggest is less like the scene um, as it was characterised from 2002 to 2012. Uh, these are much more sort of pop-up or mobile places. Without the stability of space that the Sly Fox, for example, had represented, is that we might get very different types of investments um, than the ones that I had tracked when I was doing my research. And those investments might... Uh, not necessarily take place or, or, or hold on to space um, that might take different forms. Um, and there's also that tension, I guess, as well between um, lesbian and queer um, and the sort of connotations of each of those and the idea that um, we are moving by necessity into a much more inclusive space um, uh, where queer and lesbian um, are are often subsumed under the one sort of party um, label as well. And they, again, might have some very different investments in how um, identity gets articulated and valorised in, in particular spaces. So in your research, you underscore the importance of collective narration to Sydney's drag king scene and its coherence as a scene. Um, there's a line you actually have that I kind of adore where you go, through the power of stories retrospectively told among its members. Um, and this is interesting to me as someone whose research is primarily grounded in memory studies these days, as it resonates strongly with our understanding of collective memory, that is memory sustained as it is repeatedly shared between individuals or between an individual and the environment. Are these stories still being told in the absence of drag king performances? And how, if at all, is memory of this scene being preserved? I think so. Um, I think the, these anecdotes get told. Every time there's a mention of a drag king or, or a new drag king event um, that's coming up, um, you can see that people start telling stories about um, the drag king scene that they remember. And I think in doing so, they basically give new life um, to a scene. Uh, it's really important that this scene does exist in social memory, um, just because of the lack of any archival evidence of it. Um, and people have a different account of the scene depending on who they're talking to and what memories that they bring to fore in their um, anecdotes that they tell about, them, or the stories that they tell about it. So the scene will take on very different dimensions and contours 
um, and characterizations depending on who's telling the story and who's receiving the story. Um, so in one time, in one anecdote, it could be about um, the feelings of desire um, and emotion um, that circulate within a room full of drunken lesbians when there's a semi-naked drag king on stage. Um, and that's, a, that's one version of a scene. But the scene could also exist in a story about people talking about feelings of sexual harassment um, and the, the, and I put this in air quotes, meat market vibe um, that would sometimes characterise people's experience. So you see a very different type of scene um, emerge from those stories. Um, and I think this is the, the beautiful thing about um, this notion of scene as its conceptual work um, because it does allow for these various different attitudes um, and experiences um, to take hold and take different form um, so that you could never really say that there was only one scene that existed in Sydney. And every time those stories are told and the scene gets um, brought to life again is that you get to see all the different iterations of it over time. And I think that's where the social memory thing is really interesting because over time, of course, people's memories change. Depending on who they're talking to, um, it shapes their own memories in return. Um, and so you have this phenomenon that is never really ever done or completed or finalised, despite the fact that it has no material infrastructure anymore, um, that it's something that sort of repeats itself in various iterations through storytelling. Yeah, that's a, that's a fascinating dimension um, to this scene because it highlights um, the difficulty had in trying to capture uh, social memory and memory of social worlds versus, um, you know, the kind of material cultural forms that emerge around attempting to anchor memory. So uh, heritage sites, plaques, um, monuments and so forth, which would be, if anything, trying to stabilise one particular memory meaning versus what you were just discussing in terms of iterating on the social memory uh, among its members. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's something I tried to make clear is that I'm not describing a single scene, but I'm describing how a scene took form um, through the people that I spoke with over the time of the research. Yeah, so you've mentioned a few times um, while talking about this, the idea of um, scenes kind of inherently always supposed to be um, kind of temporary or... or, uh, almost unstable um and I, I was wondering are there ways that scenes like this can be protected and should they be protected if there are ways I guess what would that look like uh and if that was possible how would that change the scene itself that's really hard to tell um for one thing um the Sydney Drag King scene kind of actively resisted its own archival attempts uh, you weren't allowed to take photographs um, during performances, and that was a really strictly enforced rule. Um, and it's just, and that's unbelievable if you think about um, in this day and age how quickly, you know, an image on someone's phone can circulate on social media, and so that this um, instruction was obeyed. Um, if there were photographers there, they were usually from um, gay press doing scene photos. I don't know whether you've come across those before, but they tend to just be these sort of head and shoulder pictures of audience members. Um, and they rarely took photos of the performers um, at the time as well. So if you were looking through this, these types of scene pages as a form of archive, then they paint a very kind of different story um, to the 
to the really richly detailed experiences that people shared with me when they talked about what it meant to be a scene participant. Um, one thing I've always thought, um, and this is where you have that tension, um, I would love it if every single drag king uh, performer or promoter kept their own archive of, um, of their experiences um, putting on drag king performances. But you, run, you, you push up against that kind of feeling that this thing is insignificant right now. You know, so how, how do you know if you're an archivist when to start recording things? or when you are simply playing around with being a drag king and then you haven't quite taken it seriously yet, or if you're starting out and putting on producing nights, um, you know, you sort of think that the archival work takes place when it becomes serious or becomes significant. Um, and that's the whole point of scenes, is that they are comprised of all of these seemingly insignificant uh, interactions and engagements, um, and it would probably be quite impossible to capture every single one of those and so in doing so, if you uh, have some kind of institutional endorsement around an archival practice, you're probably only going to get one side or one part or one iteration of the scene. So I would love for people to record everything, but I also um, see the impossibility of that as ever being able to capture the scene. Yeah. So... Let's talk a little bit about um, your current research. So as we mentioned kind of at the start of the show, you're a key researcher on the Crystal Pleasures and Sex Between Men project. Um, can you tell us a bit about this? Yeah, sure. Uh, I guess that's the weird thing, isn't it? Someone coming from cultural studies, looking at LGBTIQ social scenes in urban infrastructure and is now working in public health. Um, and it has been a bit of a learning curve, um, to be quite frank. Um, it's... <laughs> I had to learn all sorts of things that, um, you know, in the language of epidemiology and other things that I had no interest in, in, um, in before this work. But it is still, I think it's really interesting. Um, and I think the cultural studies disciplinary training has helped me try to think through sometimes where things um, have a culturally resonant or um, stability and how we might be able to disrupt that um, so to better help um, affected communities. So one of the projects that I spend most of my time on is called the Crystal Pleasures and Sex Between Men Research Project and it's looking at crystal methamphetamine use which is also known as ice or meth um, among gay and bisexual men in Australia who use it predominantly for sexual purposes um, so when they basically get high and have sex. Um, uh, a lot of the public health research in this area has pointed to a correlation between uh, what be could be colloquially termed as chemsex practices um, and uh, HIV and hepatitis C transmission, STI transmission, and some other sort of poor health outcomes. Um, the problem with that type of mostly quantitative work, and I don't here mean to dismiss that type of work, it's really essential for providing that kind of, um, that ground of the issue, is that correlation does not necessarily mean causation. Um, and so one of the things that we often need to do is to take this quantitative research um, and then apply some qualitative methodologies to further or dig deeper into what's actually happening on the ground. Um, so I had the privilege of talking to 88 gay and bisexual men across Australia about the crystal methamphetamine use and also 35 key um, stakeholders who work in um, uh, bloodborne virus prevention fields, sexual health, harm reduction, policy and so on. What we aimed to get was a, 
a clearer picture of uh, some of the pleasures, some of the attraction of um, having sex on crystal and also some of the risks um, that exist, but also how men themselves might be um, minimising those risks through sort of collective harm reduction techniques that might not um, be known to um, the services that work in this area. Um, and I guess the reason why we look at crystal methamphetamine is that it is one of the most commonly associated drugs in Australia with uh, chemsex or with ha having sex when high. Um, but it also has um, a bit of a popular um, imaginary attached to it as well, born from some of the media um, reporting around the issue and also a lot of the, um, I guess, public health uh, responses uh, to it as well. We've, at the moment, um, we've just wound up the New South Wales ICE inquiry, for example. So um, there's this really kind of resonant um, notion of, of, of the danger of crystal methamphetamine and one of the things that we wanted to do was actually speak to people with experiential knowledge of it and to work out precisely what those dangers were, what are the realistic dangers and what are maybe the more hyped up dangers and think about the ways that we can just better um, engage with men so that they can be safe if they choose to have sex when they're high. Yeah, so on that idea, uh, a lot of the groundwork for this project is anchored in a critique of this kind of trope of the ice addict and um, rush to risk. So. Uh, what characterises these kind of tropes and why are they unhelpful? Okay, uh, I think that a lot of, um, for all uh, the benefits that are attributed to the, those types of public education campaigns, they do unfortunately um, solidify this notion of a nice addict. I'm sure that you can picture it now. There's um, a person who uh, is probably undernourished or, you know, very skinny. Um, their skin uh, looks to be damaged by um, pockmarks and also maybe um, there's an image of them scratching at their skin to further contribute to that. Um, there's also the popular image of the um, ice psychosis um, where it's usually someone who is um, uh, depicted as being sort of insane with rage um, caused by um, crystal methamphetamine. Um the problem with those depictions is they they can really stigmatise um, people who use substances um, by making them look like they are out of control, uh, that, that they are dangerous, that the drug is compelling them to do dangerous things and to um, cause harm or risk harm to others and members of the public. Um, I think one of the most recent ones I saw was in the ED department at a hospital um, and the idea there is that this drug will cause a psychosis in a person who will then lash out at, um, at healthcare professionals in an unacceptable way. Um, the reality is, though, is that drug substance use is rarely something that's undertaken in isolation as an individual, um, uh, especially with gay and bisexual male um, cultures. The combination of sex and drugs has been a long part of that history. Um, and men have been using drugs to socialise and to interact as well as to have sex. And so you can't really disassociate the sexual from the social when you're looking at this particular phenomenon in this context. Um, if public education campaigns over, over substance use only rely on that really damaged individual, pathologised individual narrative, 
men who may be using sex for drugs, sorry, uh, drugs for sex and socialising in those sort of um, implicated cultures where sex and socialising can't be disentangled, then they're less likely to respond to any of those education um, campaigns. They're less likely to see themselves in the narrative of that um, ice addict and therefore they're less likely to go and seek support if at any point their substance use does turn to be a little bit problematic and starts to impact on their life in negative ways. Yeah, so the research focuses primarily on how these tropes manifest in public health campaigns and policy and political rhetoric. Um, but obviously that's not the entire scope of where these tropes appear. Uh, they also appear in popular culture like films and television. Um, could you talk more to the relationship between these two arenas or does the specific critique of the ice attic trope and what it obscures uh, necessarily restrict how we might be able to apply it to other representations of drug use and addiction? There's many of my colleagues who have done fantastic research in how these tropes manifest in uh, legal contexts, in media and in policy documents and that was outside of the scope of our particular study. Our study was um, was more definitely focused on the empirical um, uh, documentation of men's experiential knowledge around um, crystal methamphetamine use. Uh, however, it was very clear from the outset, and it's clear in the data that we collected, is that these um, more popular tropes, um, especially as they manifest in public health education campaigns, were actually quite um, detrimental um, to men's experience. Um, it increased um, the perception of discrimination against them if they disclosed to, say, their GP or healthcare professional that they were um, a substance user. Um, it inhibited them from accessing support, um, including some fantastic harm reduction support that is not based on abstinence, for example. Um, and it sort of, I guess, went to the prevailing notion that um, you had to self-identify as an addict in order to access AOD services. Um, and that's something where someone is maybe not at the point where they would recognise their use as problematic um, or they, will, uh, they couldn't see how their practices aligned with that popular depiction and so they were less likely to then seek support. And that's, that's a shame because there's a lot of fantastic services in Australia that um, operate on abstinence-based... Oh, sorry, on... Um, smart recovery and, um, and harm reduction where um, you don't have to necessarily give up if you wanted just to control your substance use. Um, so I think that's what our attempt then really was to try to destabilise um, some of these popular tropes by pointing and, and, and providing evidence of how men in reality understood Crystal understood themselves as um, as crystal users, and also understood the perception of pleasure and risk associated with those practices. Can you talk a bit more about the importance of the project sex positive approach to the subject matter, especially as it relates to gay and bisexual men? Um, again, this goes back to um, destabilizing some of those tropes that um, exist when we think about the ice addict. Um, the First and foremost, we wanted to recognise that sex and sociality for some gay and bisexual men was, in, was entangled with each other and that any investigation of the crystal methamphetamine use had to acknowledge um, uh, that, that entanglement. Um, it also meant that we weren't approaching the study 
from a pathologizing perspective. And this is quite common in a lot of studies that look for motivations or reasons why gay bisexual men might use uh, drugs to enhance sex. So, for example, um, I'm sure that you've heard of things like the minority stress um, explanations, um, internalised homophobia, um, uh, you know, the idea that, um, oh, the, the, the legacy of the AIDS epidemic, all of these um, aspects are thought to contribute to a really negative place in which gay and bisexual men are at, which then motivates them to use substances so that they can feel better. Um, the reality is, is that people use drugs because they are pleasurable, um, whether that's alcohol or marijuana or crystal methamphetamine. Um, you don't have to be a damaged individual to seek out some of the pleasures of substance use. Um, and that's really important when we um, approach this type of phenomenon um, around chemsex practices because we have to acknowledge that um, the pleasures of intoxication are often um, bound up with um, the pleasures of sex. Um, so if we went into this study and we talked to gay men from a pathologising perspective from the outset, then there's just no capacity to have the type of open um, conversation that we were able to have. Um, having, yeah, it's a, it was an interesting experience. Um, I often joked that um, it was impossible to shock me <laughs> with some of the stories that men might tell me about um, what, what they get up to when they're having sex and they're high. Um, I now take that back. There were a couple of times where I was like, whoa, okay, that's interesting. I hadn't heard that one before. Um, but on the whole, I think approaching this research with, I guess, a type of curiosity um, and a sex-positive approach allowed guys to feel much more comfortable in disclosing um, what they were up to. And, you know, to get that sort of information, to find out exactly how men understand the relationship between sex and drugs, uh, what, how they understand risks um, and harms associated with that and what they do to, 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 to reduce those is really important because otherwise you simply have correlation in, this, in, in the research around this issue and nothing else. Yeah, so uh, one production that uh, is kind of tied to um, all this that we're talking about now is the recently launched Crystal Clear podcast series. So can you tell us a bit about Crystal Clear? I have been living Crystal Clear for <laughs> the last couple of months. <laughs> um, <laughs> I've never produced podcasts before, so this was, again, yet another massive learning curve for me. Um, the way that this started, we uh, the, this NHMRC project operates uh, with an advisory committee with um, associate partners that are from each of the AIDS councils in the states that we conducted the study. So we brought them all together up to Sydney um, and discussed some of our findings after we completed the analysis and the original thematic coding on their interviews. Um, and we had, uh, if you can imagine, we have hour-long interviews with 88 men and 35, 30-minute conversations with stakeholders. We have so much data. It's, it's really difficult to try and figure out what to do with it. But what we did clearly identify was that um, there was some gaps in um, or uneven access to information and resources and knowledge among some key demographics that we'd identified. Um, and we could have thought about how we can reach these demographics so that they can, um, they can have access to the type of support information and resources um, that they need to have in order to make the decisions that are going to be best for them in their lives. Uh, so podcasts... So when we think about research translation, uh, the conventional kind of approach is to write a report in lay language. 
Um, maybe hold a, um, a presentation or a forum with um, you know, LGBTIQ health organisations and things like that. Um, but the problem with that, um, as, as well-meaning as they're intended, um, is that if you aren't reaching certain populations um, through that engagement with LGBTI health organisations and so on, then it's unlikely that um, they'll all flock to your research translation forum and suddenly be enlightened um, as to what your research means for them. So we thought about a way to make the research translatable and uh, impactful and engage with um, those populations. Podcasts, as you probably know, are easily shareable. Um, you know, you can listen to it um, on the train in the morning with your headphones on, um, or not. Some, in some cases, not headphones on, um, uh, and they're shareable as well. So um, people can share the URLs um, amongst their networks. So the idea is that we could have potentially this product that could um, give information about the study, um, have people interact with the study and its conclusions, but also um, act in its, in its own right as a, as a resource or as a form of information. So we set it up, so we took out some really lovely um, quotes from some of our interview transcripts and used those as stimulus um, with our guests and hosts to get them to talk about their experiences in relation to those, um, in relation to the research. The series was hosted by Tobin Saunders, who sometimes gets about as Vanessa Wagner. Um, so for me, having that drag persona um, was a nice way to tie in my um, previous research with this. Um, and Tobin did a fantastic job of really sensitively and skillfully guiding the guest conversations um, around some of the key messages um, that we wanted to get out. Um, so in, in, in the workshop and in the lead up to the podcast production, we had lots of meetings with our stakeholders around what key messages, um, what key points of information do we want to distill in these podcasts? And we sort of crafted um, a very rough storyboard around that and using our data as stimulus. But at the end of the day, it was really the experiential knowledge um, and the ways that our guests uh, articulated um, that knowledge and experience that formed the backbone of the research, of the podcasts. And we will be sure to link the podcast in our episode description as well, so some of our listeners can find it if they like. Well, that's it for this episode. We will provide links to the various places you can find Karen's work online in the episode description. If you enjoyed this episode, consider pledging to our Patreon at patreon.com slash Pledge a start at a dollar a month and help with our ongoing running costs. You can also support us by rating us on iTunes or on your podcatcher of choice, or by recommending Trope Watchers to a friend. If you're a fan of Trope Watchers and the worlds of Westeros and Essos, check out our sister podcast, A Clash of Critics, your scholarly podcast about Game of Thrones and A Song of Ice and Fire. Our website is tropewatchers.com. We are on social media at tropewatchers, and you can email us at tropewatchers at gmail.com. Until next time, I'm Mia. And I'm Scott, and we are your Trope Watchers. Trope Watchers.